This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Hello, welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee and Wendat peoples and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. One of the great things about doing this show and engaging in all things DEI is that I get to connect with impressive people across North America, leaders who are making change happen, making a real impact when it comes to inclusiveness and equality in the corporate world and beyond. My guest today is no exception. My guest is Ingrid Wilson, a senior human resource executive and equity and inclusion strategist with over 30 years of global experience in corporate human resource strategy, board, and business strategy. Ingrid is currently the principal advisor at Gridfern Strategic HR from 2021 to 2022. Ingrid led in the role of Senior Director, Culture, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Walmart Canada and has held numerous other roles in the business sector, including at Oracle, just to name but a few. Ingrid is also the recipient of the 2021 Top 25 DEI Person of the Year Award. Kudos to Ingrid. She serves on a nonprofit community and advisory member boards and committees, including as a board director, governance and audit at the Canadian Association of Black Insurance Professionals, CABIP, which we'll talk more about in today's episode. I, I know Ingrid would hate me, but she does have a very long list of impressive other achievements in academia and beyond. But needless to say, Ingrid is uh, just someone that's making things happen with people, culture and EDI. She knows her stuff. She's a proud Canadian with Jamaican roots. Welcome to Black and White, Ingrid Wilson. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you for making the time. I know you're you're a very in-demand advisor and professional and a busy person on so many fronts. So first, let me just orient our audience here. Um, so you and I first connected over the last uh, couple of years. I've been reaching out into community across North America, reaching out to leaders like yourself to really get a sense of what's really happening on the ground in corporate Canada, corporate USA. And one of the things I enjoyed the most about our conversation was your candidness, because I'm really trying to get a better sense of what's actually happening. So I thank you for that. And we'll get into that. But first, as someone that's been in HR, in HR for a long time, 
focus on people and culture. How have you seen the focus on DEI change over the last few years, especially since the global reckoning on race and post-George Floyd murder in 2020? Great question. So for those of us who have been in HR as long and as I have been, equity and inclusion was embedded. It was never separated. So the new DEI is, is a buzz phrase. And what's happened, it's separated it and put it on an island on its own. So you're either sitting in the people and culture team or you're sitting reporting into organizational behavior and not really having that impact and that that line to senior management and CEOs. Whereas when it was not the buzz phrase, you could make those systemic changes as a senior HR leader and just moving it forward, right? Why has that been a deliberate change uh, for from your perspective? I think because people have been uncomfortable with, with what they're seeing and equity and inclusion has really been pushed forward more in the last year and a half. It, it's been diversity for a long time, but diversity is really targets and and counting people but as as the global the world has has opened up diversity is here we're all human beings you look around it's a diverse world so how to get to equity inclusion started before george floyd it's just that every time you have something very very traumatic happen there's this reaction we have to do something so the do was to create diversity equity inclusion Right. And around this time, Black History Month, we're waiting to see if it's going to happen as much this year. There's a ton of people who look like me, Black women or men who are promoted into DI roles or it's added on to their role. Right. Because it's Black History Month. It's not that intentional, included in people and culture and all things people and looking at the systems that are not built for all of us. So that's that's a challenge. So tell me about those systems, because I know that's something really that you're focused on, you know, about what real change can look like. Yeah. So if, if you look at it in corporate, it's what follows an employee through their entire employment cycle with the organization. So through the front door. So how do you get an employee to an organization? It's that brand democracy of this is an organization that has social impact that I want to work for, right? And that is part of DEI. You get them through the door and then how do you keep them? How do you retain them? It's it's the onboarding, the orientation that makes somebody feel like they belong in that workplace, right? And then as they move through their career, how do they get promoted? Because if people stay static, their compensation is affected, especially when RSP and benefits are a percentage, right? So by not progressing through your career, what's happening is, is there's no equity. And there's a lack of understanding that certain groups and cultures and identities don't put their hand up for roles, right? So there's a big gap in the talent management piece with the promotion and career development. And then some people make a decision when well, I'm going to leave the organization, okay. right, to develop my career. And even how the person is leaving the organization. So for me, somebody comes to my door, you know, I, I can't get ahead. I don't know what to do here, what's happening. I'm going to tell them to make a personal decision, right? Because that employee may come back to us in the future having other experiences. So how they Absolutely. leave the organization mm-hmm. is important as well. So those are all the systems that weren't built for all. You know, it was built for a dominant group and that did not include women. Mm-hmm. White men. Let, let's just say it for white men by white men. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and accessibility is a huge gap. Identity is a huge gap. 
benefits are a problem because there's no cultural or identity awareness. And we're still struggling with that, right? So, you know, people say that, okay, this is all racism. Okay, but racism is a social construct. It was created to group us into sections and areas so that they could deal with us, right? And try and fit us in the box. And for me, it's always been um, really important to step back and look at how we can be equitable for all. And, and, and I don't mean equality. Equality is very, very different because you could say there's equality because all the opportunities are out there, but not everybody has the same financial status or ability of course, of course. to get there, right? So, And by the way, you just said something that was interesting because I think systemic racism seems to be one of those phrases and terms that I find a lot of non-white people have a very challenging time understanding or or maybe even getting a bit defensive about it, right? So it's different than overt racism where people seem to be easily to understand. I'm not a racist. I don't use racist terms. I, I have black friends, whatever. But when we're talking about systemic racism, almost in, in many ways today, I would say it's almost people are unaware of what that part is because they're not they first they don't live it and they're they may not even have been there when the systems were created right and these are the embedded baked in systems that uh, were created usually a long time ago by white men to serve themselves in the way that institutions and systems were created be education healthcare the corporate world banking all of that stuff and in so many ways have never been reformed Right. Slightly by government regulations where women need to be, you know, including women and then eventually people of color and then black people and indigenous people. There's been some government efforts to bring equity measures. But for the most part, if you look structurally, the systems still need huge reforms. Yeah, because because what's happening? So first of all, I think people, they get upset and they carry this guilt when you talk about systemic racism because they personalize it. It is not individual. It's a system. It's a cultural construct that's been created from colonization. So I think it, it's better understood if you explain it that way, that it's not individual, right? It's mm-hmm. a system that we're all living, working in every day. And the challenge is when we change policies to try and address that systems, we're just adding on. It's like piecemeal versus going to actually what's creating the systems. So for example, in in benefit plans, to do costing and actuarial costing for benefit programs, it's split between male and female, right? Over the last couple of years, they've added on other. Sure. Right? One organization I'm going to call out, Green Shield, they are way ahead as to what they're doing and looking at. They they have a piece for the genders and identities that they've been working through. So they have a good understanding of where we need to go. But they came from a TPA versus insurance company, and they're building into an insurance company. Okay. So the challenge is you put in other, so that means male and female, and all the other identities and everything else gets stuck under other So you're not really addressing the cultural differences. And then when the programmers take other, if you select other, they're putting you with with male. (laughs) Really interesting. And it's just a process. 
for them to handle the benefit systems. And now we have this huge group of people in the gig economy. So all the people working for the Amazons, the Walmart, the Costco's that are working part-time, so it may be a second and third part-time mm -hmm. job, they don't have benefits. And that group is growing. So for the frontline workers who are working part-time all the time that are usually Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities, there is a lack of health equity because we don't have a, a structure for that. Well, then, so, right? so there is the gap in the system, right? So, which is part corporate strategy to keep their costs down, trying to align with perhaps their DEI efforts, right? But there's such a gap, but it, it seems to me that and correct me if I'm wrong, but that it seems the corporate world needs to go deeper, right? And 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 if we're just looking at the corporate, to, to really get to the systems and take the time, you just mentioned one, one organization, and deconstruct to reconstruct, right? So that yeah. they're approaching yeah. it fundamentally from a restructured foundation so that now whatever resources and energy they actually want to put into inclusivity and equity is actually going to be built on different foundations, right? And I know that that's a lot of work, but it seems, you know, the impression I get from you, Ingrid, is that's really the work that needs to be done. It is, but it's expensive and you need the resources. And by othering the DEI group person and putting them on the other side, they don't get the fundamental um, resources they need or the money is applied. So for example, if you're DEI and you're in the people team, right, your budget is gonna be shared with the people team. So you don't have that capacity to make real change unless you're gonna go outside and beg people like they would say in Jamaican, beg people to come and help <laughs> you do something, right? Right. And if you're DEI reporting to organizational change or finance, their transformations and their cost cutting will not allow you to do that. So it's like back in the day when when you used to have budget problems and they would cut training. Sure. DEI is in the same mandate. It's one of the first things that cut, that's cut. And then what they move to is, well, can't you do like Black History Month coming? So can you not just do a BHM event and let's celebrate? Well, for me, that's performative culturism. Mm -hmm. It's right. You you pick those those events and you say, hey, we're going to celebrate this. And then the day after, we're back to, to whatever norms are created in that culture, right? So there needs to be an understanding that if we're going to make these changes, it needs to start at the systems. There needs to be a strategy, needs to be resources. And in this economic um, downside coming out of pandemic, a lot of organizations are struggling. You know, they're trying to focus on stability, um, selling products, selling services. So those kind of must-haves for equity and inclusion, benefits, accessibility, all those pieces are going to be pushed aside, right? And I think what employers don't understand is what they see of an employee when they come into the workspace is only part of their, their personal being, right? So I've seen situations where people have to make decisions about whether they could buy pads for periods versus taking a taxi to come to work or taking a bus to come to work. So that's why we have situations like that. And there's actually groups in Canada that are working with women to help them with that. You know, things that that's a lot of people wouldn't even consider. Yeah, but it's about being a human being, right? Yes. You have African Food Basket. I do a lot of work with African Food Basket uh, through KBIP. And Tafari was telling us about 
you know, delivering. So what they do is, is, is they deliver natural foods to the black communities. And many of them in that area are older. They can't come down the stairs or the elevators. So we, we pack boxes of food, which is getting more expensive. You know, when you're paying for plantains at, at th- $3 for a plantain versus what it was before. But so you gather the funds, you take that over. And Tafari told us a story about the woman couldn't come downstairs, so she went upstairs and she saw the cans of cat food. Oh, you have a cat. Well, she didn't have a cat. She's eating the cat food for protein. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we don't understand that the person sitting beside us Maybe struggling financially to put food on on the table. The prices of food right now, you know, chicken is a staple in many, many communities. And with biodiversity changing, so there's a lack of, of areas to grow food. And in the winter, right, how do you sustain Right. So groups like uh, African Food Basket, the Food Bank, their CEO talks about the increase of need. Like there's more people going to the food banks than ever before. We just can't ignore it. We've gotten deep into the individual, right? And the realities of their life, which they bring to the workplace, right? All of those things, especially from different diverse cultures and people, men, women, different genders, identifying as all. So you have to kind of put that all together to, you know, and you said it takes a lot of work and time and money. But, and I want to go back just a little bit because- when I did the research for my book, Black and White, one of the things was that the research shows that if you, if the organizations that actually invest uh, and make DEI a business imperative, right, which is actually part of their success strategy in regards to revenue and profitability and valuation of their business, they act diversity is actually a positive contributor, right? So this is actually, I guess, the argument that needs to be made and people like yourself have been, I know, very vocal in that front. So we got to take a break. I want to go back to something we were talking about. So we'll be back with Ingrid after the break and get into that. Hey, everyone. If you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services, 
positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. All right, welcome back to Black and White. I'm with my amazing guest, Ingrid Wilson. Ingrid, so before the break, we were talking about the Black North Initiative. Um, I, I think it's a great initiative um, that's really challenging Canadian corporations to increase representation and diversity in leadership roles and on boards. There was research published last year that so some progress. They surveyed just a, a small amount of the organizations that had signed up. More than 500 have signed up today. I've actually heard from the executive director that progress has real made. They have some great success stories that I think they'll be sharing in 2023. What do you think about the Black North Initiative in regards to its objectives and other organizations like that that are trying to push corporate leaders to uh, to really take real action when it comes to representation and diversity? I think a lot of the organizations like BNI where you're signing on as a signatory, the intent is good, but you have to have the momentum to move it to action and execution, right? So I think a lot of organizations feel that if they sign off on these signatories, then they're doing their bit, right? And it's just like you say that to be an anti-racist is quite different from being a non-racist, right? And anti-racist means action. So you need to see that execution. So 500 organizations have signed up, but you get back to this systemic racism, which is embedded in structures and processes. So how many people in the organization know that's what's happening and can write a program and a strategy around that, Mm -hmm. right? So I think everybody needs to come to the table and understand where you can make change and the changes that can be made are around the supports for the people. Right. So just what we were talking about before, the financial support. So I see a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of information coming out now about giving um, scholarships and recognition. You know, there's emergency funding that individuals can apply for at some organizations that we saw happening a lot. So I don't refer to it as a work as a workplace because we're hybrid. Right. It's a workspace. And even the frontline workers are blending their work and personal. So. To make real impact, you have to understand the financial health risks, lack of education that are preventing people from coming to work and focusing successfully on work every day. And if you embed that with what BNI and the other organizations are doing and start providing those supports and looking at those structures and systems, then you will see the change. But it is not going to be overnight. You know, I look on LinkedIn, I mean, there's a, a plethora of DEI roles, senior roles that are 
advertise, you know, I mean, so from that standpoint, you know, I think that's a positive thing. It's there, there's roles to be had for people like yourself and others who are looking to lead in those spaces in the corporate world. Hopefully they get into an organization that's resourcing that role and, and, and those objectives properly. From what I'm hearing from you, maybe not at the level required. And it's at risk because of economic drivers. And, and let's face it, I always say this to people, it's still a corporation, right? And we know their fiduciary right goal is to actually to shareholders first, right? right? So the economic viability and well-being of the business and how uh, they return an investment to shareholders, right? So let's just agree that that's really what we're talking about here. And then, of course, there's the people that work there and make that happen. And, you know, uh, again, I'm... I'm not a cynic, so I've worked for corporations and I've worked for very good corporations and I've seen the care and the support that they've provided to people in terms of their employees. Maybe it diverged in regards to different people at different times through the decades, Uh, but here we are today. So all this to say that who's going to make these hard decisions, Ingrid, who needs to make these hard decisions and how, if you were, you know, boss lady number one at the top, how would you actually shape this? Well, the first thing is you, you got to pay to play. You can't bring in a DEI person or an organization and underestimate the value. So I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of roles out there, but what they're paying for the roles and the bandwidth of the roles is just unacceptable, right? And the first thing I asked when they approached me about those roles is, would I have a budget, right? Mm-hmm. And first response is, Oh, I'm going to have to go back and find that out. So it means you don't have a budget, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And honestly, I think the CEO is really imperative. So this is more than a business imperative. This is a human imperative, right? The people carry the organization forward. They help bring value to the organization that the shareholders want to see. And the CEOs carry the culture, especially if there are CEOs that has a strong presence, right? So no matter what those four or five values you put on the table are, Mm -hmm. when the CEO changes, the culture changes, the leadership changes. And what we're seeing is you'll see a very strong CEO who's saying lay it out, but the management level below senior leaders are not provided with the capacity to make that change. There's a complete disconnect there. There's a disconnect because they're focused on product service Mm -hmm. tasks. Yes, Right. So it's not funneling all the way down and the CEO is too high up. So you're still going to get these reports that you're going to get metrics that, yes, we're doing this, that and the other. And it's like, woo, we have black people because I walked down the hallway and I saw a black person walk down the hallway. Right. Mm -hmm. Versus what level is this black person at and looking at how many individuals were denied roles in different categories and cultures. Right. So no matter what people say about diversity, not being a good thing. Targets and measures, data is really imperative. Absolutely. It has to be part of the work. It has to come with the stories, the impact, but it has to be part of the work. Otherwise, how do you know you're improving, right? I agree with you. So, and on that topic, organizations that believe in this, especially startups, where transparency and accountability have been at the forefront, right? So be it, for example, I worked for a number of startups and corporations where 
everyone had visibility on the financial health of the business, right? Understanding how we how profitable or not we were, the individual and team contributions to that profitability, etc. And what I found with that is that, of course, and, and our compensation was tied to it as well, our bonus structure, our pay for performance. And I love that because I'm an entrepreneur, entrepreneur. And I think what I've heard in terms of, of diversity, equity, inclusion programs is that that's also what's required, right? Which is the reporting. I'm talking internally and public reporting of objectives and how you work to those objectives, even if you don't actually meet them, right? It's okay, right? It's the progress and it's being accountable for those. Because I think if you have transparency and accountability, you are then more likely, just as in financial accountability for other programs, you need to make decisions about how to actually rectify if you're not achieving the goal, right? So I think for the most part, correct me if I'm wrong, Ingrid, this is a big part that I think is missing more broadly. It is. Lots of corporations will tell you that it's part of their their um, KPIs for leaders. But if you actually look at it, it has very dedicated KPIs for all sorts of other areas. And then you'll see DEI tacked on, literally, and DEI, but with no definition. So what are your targets? What do you need to do to get there, right? So that's when you'll see leaders running to other departments in the people team and DEI. Are you rolling out programs? Because if you are, I'm going to put that in my KPI, right? Well, what did you actually do? Well, I invited you to speak to the program in front of my team. But <laughs> that's not action, right? How, how are you going to take it forward? So as an organization, you can't just tack on DEI at the end. DEI has to be an embedded characteristics in the skill set. It has to be part of the skills required for leadership, right? How are you going to get there? And that equity and inclusion, I, I love the six C's, Deloitte six C's, where they talk about cognizance and culture and really being a leader that recognizes that the team is different. They're all unique. And how, how I'm going to work with the team needs agility mm-hmm. and adaptability, right? And being courageous. And, and the challenge with that is we weren't brought up to do that as leaders. Like we need to change as leaders, right? I remember years ago, um, working in the hospital industry, having one of my direct reports call me to order. And, and she's a good friend years and years later, but she said, hey, you just walk in here. You don't really say good morning. You come out here with tasks, right? And it was like, that's what I do, right? And I'm not comfortable going and having the small chat, but it's required. It is absolutely required. So at least treating people with respect and courtesy, and then you get better performance, right? I hear you. I hear you for sure. I had a leader, you know, a a year and a half ago, our father was very, very sick and and in palliative care. And I remember my first day on a job, uh, uh, my my VP saying to me, because we had to take a call from the doctors. She said, do you want to take a week off? And my husband said, this is the leader you need to work for. That's what she said. First day, you would take a week. I'll handle it. She was, she was awesome, right? Amazing. And I'm going to call her Jennifer Pierce. Awesome, awesome lady, right? <laughs> we, we all have those amazing people along the way, yeah. you know? I want to shine the light on you a little bit and kind of, um, you know, you're a black woman that has achieved in the corporate world where we know if there's one group of people in the corporate world that have had it the toughest, really, are black women. And the interesting part is there's this intersectionality of race and gender, 
right? And I'll just put this number. Black women on average make 68 cents on the dollar compared to white men. 68 cents. If you put all women to it, it's 87 cents. That's worse than, obviously, white men, white women. Black men are in third place, if you will, if there's a, a score. And women, 68 cents on the dollar compared to white men. I still find this hard to believe in 2023. First, of all, I want to say what's going on, Ingrid? And second, as a follow-up to that, I want to talk about, because you're an achiever and people say, oh, look, Ingrid did it, right? So I want to ask you about this intersectionality of factors that really affects Black women, particularly, and tell me a little bit more about how you pushed through that to get to where you are today. I had two CEOs who are very strong allies. And as far as they were concerned, you were a person and a human being. And if you had the capacity and showed that you could do the work, they were going to support you. I got things like, Ingrid, we're going to give you this. So I don't know how to do this. Well, I'll, I'll learn with you. Let's, let's go, right? Without allyship for Black women to get into senior roles, it is very, very challenging because we're targeted, right? You hear quite often terms like passionate, aggressive Versus for a man, it is they're strategic, mm-hmm. right? They're action oriented. For us, it's, it's a very, very different approach, right? You know, and, and it's draining because sometimes you have to project more in, in the corporate environment to get stuff done. You, you have to sell a case, right? You have to bring a strategic plan. You have to bring the data. You have to write the executive overview. You have to take it forward. You have to cover every area to make sure that you're heard, right? And, you know, there's a, there's a group of us out there that are talking about it is if we're going to succeed right now, it's really looking at going on our own and pulling up other people with us because it's very, very challenging right now if you're a Black woman to stay in a corporate role without challenging the status quo, right? If you challenge the status quo, and you don't have an ally in the organization, that, that's not going to work, right? So that is a challenge that many of us are facing right now. You know, should DEIs be separated from the people and culture? I, I think people and culture and DEI should stand together. And that way it, it works more effectively. I wouldn't even understand why it would be different. Yeah, but, but it is. So really, you have to have strong allyship. And when I mean allyship, it's not somebody that just kind of says, Okay, Ingrid, I'll support you. It's doing it in front of people. So if you're in a meeting room, right, they're talking about you. If you're not in the meeting room and your name comes up for promotion or something else, that person's going to step in front of you and talk about it. Like Fernay Myers talks about it all the time. She said sponsorship is very, very different from mentorship, right? Mentorship is I talk to you and sponsorship is I talk about you. That's what allyship is. Yes, this embedded in me early on in my career. For some reason, I was invited to this meeting and I sat in this room with all the top executives and my boss, who was a very generous boss, and he said, come to this meeting and sit beside me and listen. And of course, and every, let's call it, middle management person's name was on a whiteboard, right? And it was essentially a decision as to who was yep. going up and who was going out, yep. right? And I remember yep. this must have been an indication of who I would become as a senior business, but they circled the name and started talking about that individual who was a, actually a white young guy. And I just couldn't help myself. I wasn't supposed to talk at this meeting, but I stood up for this person and sponsored him and said that his success 
or his lack thereof was not a reflection of his hard work because I'd been side by side with him. That was a reflection of the leadership above him, right? Which was risky to say. Yep, yep. But they actually did not erase his name off the board. Those calibration meetings happen more than people know, oh, right? All the so, time. Yeah. And and when you come from cultures that are focused on teams, the we instead of the I, you need somebody who knows your work that's gonna speak up, right? And I fear for for the people coming up behind us, especially the young black men, right? Who are so frustrated right now in getting into roles and far more than than black women, they feel that the young black men are aggressive, right? And that's challenging because there's brilliance there that's not being looked at. And some of them just decide, well, in our generation, some decide, well, we're just going to stay over here and hide. We're not going to step up. But the generation coming behind us, they're stepping up. Yes. Right? Yes. And also there's organizations in community that are helping to create this diversity talent pool and, you know, to feed these diversity pipelines that we hear about. And one of those organizations is CE, the Center for Young Black Professionals. And they're actually working with government. They're working with corporations. They're working with unions and other stakeholders to actually upskill and work with youth all the way back into high schools to give them additional support around some of those cultural life issues, right? Upskilling them and training them in alignment with actual entry-level jobs that are available in various industries and preparing them. And then they're actually sponsored in by those organizations and, and where applicable by the unions who we know have traditionally very convoluted systems to get your union certification. So to me, that's a sign of progress, but also it's where young Black men and women are identified, illuminated, even told that there's roles like insurance underwriters, roles that they may not even know exist, right? Yeah, and, and that's what we're doing in KBIP, right? So the insurance industry is an industry that is predominantly white represented, right? And KBIP is, we're a Black-led organization, member-based, and our focus is in developing and lifting up Black professionals in the insurance industry, Okay, right? We have partnerships with, with colleges. We have sponsorship coming from a lot of the large insurance companies who've stepped up and are now speaking to us about, okay, how do we action this work? So we're signing on as a sponsor, but what does that look like? So the mentorship programs, Humber College works really well with us. Um, we were at uh, the IBO conference and IBO is, is another excellent group that's really looking at at making the change in in the environment and when we're at the convention and our table is there and the the chinese association next to us it's like there's people here that look like us Hmm. right and how can we take this membership forward and how can we build networks and through that we're invited to other areas like icon talent had an event a couple months back uh kbib represented we presented and out of that we have youth who followed us through who we helped with resume writing helping them present for roles and getting roles out of it right because a lot of them don't have the confidence to move forward mm-hmm. in an industry that is 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 not built for them. And a lot of it is is confidence, right? Because everybody has has a unique way of dressing. I have the big curly hair. Some people would would say to me, "You can't go to an interview dr- with your hair out like that." Well, why not? Right? And and the young people <laughs> coming up behind us, their hair is very unique and very personal. What am I going to say to them? You can't carry yourself in an interview like that. As long as you are prepped, you're respectful, you dress for the interview. 
right? You don't have to have a suit because remember, not everybody can afford a suit, right? Especially when it's it's a, an entry-level job on your first role. Almost the cliches of job interviews and the questions and, you know, tell me one of your weaknesses. Oh, I, I'm too much of yeah. a perfectionist, right? I mean, we joke about that. But some of these trappings of job interviews, uh, I'm I'm hoping, well, you would know better than I, are gone these days, right? It's like, it's like you know, you're shaking your head <laughs> like, no. <laughs> No, they're, they're not gone. It, 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 it's like I had a young lady in Alberta just get a job with the government and I prepped her and, and her resume and, and that kind of stuff. And because of the, the area she was, was the other groups and companies she was, she was going into, I said, be prepared. It's going to be a panel interview. She said, but they didn't tell me that. How can you invite somebody for an interview and not tell them it's a panel? Right. People who are new or divergent need to prep. They cannot just come into an environment where they're talking to three people at one mm -hmm. time. It's uncomfortable. Right. It's just common courtesy. If you are doing a panel interview with somebody, tell them what they're going into. Why, why are we tricking them? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. It's like. An, an, and again, there's all this cultural differences in regards to what people are used to. Right. In regards to engaging. Right. And it's yeah. different for, for everybody. So it's a, it's a good point. I love the work you're doing with Kabip, and, and we're going to tell people a little bit more about how they can find out more. Before I let you go, I want to talk about where we are now with your career. So you're kind of an interesting point. You know, you've, you've worked in big corporate and you've advised, you're a consultant. Where do you think that, you know, looking ahead as to where you can make the most impact, the most impact and make the most change happen? What is it looking like for you? For me, it's community. I mean, I'm older now, and, and for me, it's really important to give back. So I'm really quiet about it. I mean, the Link Project, they started that project 10 years ago, and I've only been involved with it for probably less than a year, right? But quietly building, there's no need to stand on a platform and yell about, okay, this is what I want to do. This is where I'm going to go, because there's so much work to do. And that means putting on um, my running shoes and going and packing food, right? And still being able to financially support myself. Yes, that's important, but we got to help the communities around us. Those of us who, you know, I, I talk to a lot of the people that I see on the same boards and advisory boards, and it's, and it's the same people. We're, there's a very small group of us that we now need to take the time to give back. So that is definitely my focus. That I'm running. I run a lot. I'm an endurance runner. Okay. So Okay. I'm going to be looking around to see where you're running to and uh, hopefully running beside you as well. More more in terms of doing the work than actual running because I, I don't like running, really. <laughs> I'm more of a, a cyclist. But uh, Ingrid, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it and, uh, and um, look forward to seeing you soon in person, hopefully. Thank you for inviting me. It was excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Ingrid Wilson. You can learn more about her work and all the value she delivers at her website at www.gridfernhr.ca. You can learn more about the work Ingrid is championing with CABIP, C-A-B-I-P, at www.cabip.ca. Thanks everyone for listening to Black and White. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to rate our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer, engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, 
David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, An Intimate Multicultural Perspective on White Advantage and the Past to Change is available at your favorite bookstores across the U.S. and Canada, online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. I'm not on Twitter anymore. Or visit my website at stephendorsey.com. I always like to hear from you, so please send me a note. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.